people are staging this sort of proto-Stoic revolution without even knowing, you know, like Joanna had never sat down and read Epictetus before or meditations before, but she's living it out. And so many people like her are. And how beautiful is that, that there's this embodiment of these ideas and they're life-changing. Welcome to Stoic Conversations. In this podcast, Michael Tremblay and I discuss the theory and practice of Stoicism. Each week, we'll share two conversations, one between the two of us, and another will be an in-depth conversation with an expert. In this conversation, I speak with Alexandra Hudson, the founder of Civic Renaissance and author of The Soul of Civility. Epictetus has a line where he urges us to not be unfeeling like statues, but maintain our natural and acquired roles towards nature, parents, siblings, children, and fellow citizens. It's that last area, that area of being citizens that we talk about, what it means to be a good citizen in our modern age, especially the question of what does it look like to interact with other citizens, others, uh, about politics in a virtuous manner. Along the way, we discuss why politeness is overrated, education, the Stoic theory of political change, and touch on numerous contemporary and classical role models, both intellectual and political in nature. Before we jump immediately into it, I have two quick announcements. Alexandra's book, The Soul of Civility, is going to be published on October 10th. Before then, if this conversation stands out to you and you want to grab the book, Go to alexandraohudson.com slash book pre-order. Pre-order it, and uh, Alexandra has put together a nice set of gifts that you'll be eligible for. Um, So do check that out, especially if this conversation resonates with you or you find it provocative. The second announcement, I am running a free workshop next week, October 12th. It's entitled How to Think Like a Stoic. Stoic mindfulness. We're going to be talking about what Stoic mindfulness is, how to practice it, um, and most importantly, it's going to be an interactive workshop. So I'm looking forward to the discussion. If you want to register for that, go to stoameditation.com slash workshop. All right, here is our conversation. Welcome to Stoic Conversations. My name is Caleb Ontiveros. And today, I am speaking with Alexandra Hudson. Alexandra is a writer, popular speaker, founder of Civic Renaissance, and recently the author of The Soul of Civility. Thanks so much for joining. Thanks for having me, Caleb. Let's start with this broad question. What's your story? My story, I'm passionate about the way that ideas and storytelling can change people's lives and can change our world for the better. I've always been riveted by the life stories of great men and women who transformed themselves for the better than by virtue of that changed the society that they lived in. I was raised in this in a home that was incredibly intellectually curious. Uh, both my parents are very credentialed. They have graduate degrees. My father has three masters and his PhD and is a professor of cinematography and rhetoric. Um, My mother has 
ministers and law and government. And so, but all that to say, they realized that education was a way of life. It wasn't just something that happened in the classroom. Curiosity, having this fundamental wonderment about the world around you was not, um, schools did not have a monopoly on that. Classrooms did not have a monopoly on that. And often, unfortunately, schools and mainstream education can be antithetical to true to, to curiosity and lifelong learning, which is the highest and the best life. So being raised in that sort of environment, I consider um, just a supreme gift and really informs what I love and who I am. I came into my own intellectually and in, in college and took a lot of inspiration from the civic renaissance humanists. And it's kind of funny, I didn't come to my education in the, in the classical world until later. Like it was, it was kind of through the lens of the, of the renaissance and, and a lot of the thinkers of the Renaissance, it was obviously a rebirth of, of antiquity. Like they were rediscovering Plutarch and Cicero and, and also the Greeks as well by extension. And, and so I fell in love with the classics kind of tangentially. I, I, I encountered the Renaissance first and then revisited the classics later, kind of on my own after school. However, what I loved about the Renaissance humanists in particular was twofold. One, they had a high view of humanity and the human person. And a lot of them were, were Christians and they had this high view of humanity because they thought God, man was the pinnacle of God's creation in, that, in the natural world. And that the highest and best life is fulfilling, is cultivating our humanity and fulfilling our potential, our artistically, intellectually, creatively, politically, and just expressing the noblest and most beautiful versions of our of ourselves and, and the cultivation of our personalities as individuals in, in, in relationship with others. And I loved, so that, that humanism, first of all, I loved. And secondly, I loved their reverence for the past and the ideas and the thinkers that have come before us. And not just for you know, idle intellectual interest. It was especially the civic Renaissance humanists, which is the second wave of humanism in the Renaissance, where they wanted to take the ideas of antiquity and questions of, of the good life and what it means to be human and apply it to the here and the now. There was a real explicit interest in making people's lives better, applying it to the public square, applying it to leaders. And so taking ideas and the best of the past and applying it to the needs of the present, that's what really inspires me about, about, about the Renaissance. And that's why my publication and Substack, my newsletter is called Civic Renaissance, like paying homage to that sort of ethos. And so your question was, you know, what's my story? That's, that's kind of my, my story in a nutshell, who I am. Being really intellectually curious and loving education, I ended up pursuing and being invited to have a role at the United States Department of Education. I was at the single largest institution in the history of mankind dedicated to student instruction. And it was rather devastating to realize that they didn't care about education, <laughs> at least at least not how I had been educated, sure. which is a reverence for beauty and goodness and truth and lifelong learning and intellectual curiosity. And I lasted about a year in this really kind of divisive time in Washington, D.C., and in a very intellectually stifling environment. And I left and threw myself into the books and the thinkers that I loved again, you know, revisiting scripture, revisiting Aristotle and Plato and and, and just, just people and thinkers that had really formed me earlier on. And ask these questions like, what does it mean to be a human being? And what is the bare minimum of respect that we are owed and owed to others by virtue of our shared humanity? And what does that look like in person, even when we disagree? Because again, I just endured this really vitriolic year in, in federal government in Washington, D.C. And that was sort of the moral foundation, the lens through which I approach this question of civility. 
And five years later, it's now a book that I'm thrilled to say is available for, for order and available to the public. I'm really, really grateful to, to be able to share that with the world now. So my book is called The Soul of Civility, Timeless Principles to Heal society and ourselves. Excellent. Excellent. Very good. Well, one question I'm curious about is, is there something specific perhaps you think your parents did to cultivate that interest in the intellectual life education in the highest sense? Because of course you always encounter people who have these, either this background or these parents who are very interested in that world, but for whatever reason, these people don't pick it up themselves. So I'm curious if maybe there's something that your parents did, or maybe perhaps something that's unique to you? It's really just who they are. They're both incredibly voracious and curious people. Like I remember growing up, my dad always had his nose in a book. He was always lost in his own thoughts and just a dialogue with the greats constantly. And my mom, she, she, again, to this point about education, not being something that happens exclusively in a classroom. My mother homeschooled me for first grade, and but she had enough curricula and textbooks and to, to see me through multiple doctoral degrees. Like we just every every at every turn there was just like an enrichment activity and and you know and and I, I went to a combination of public, private, and charter schools for my education, and yet my mother's resources, um, you know, in song and poem and mnemonic devices, like they were so helpful to help me and they helped me succeed in the classroom because of what we did outside the classroom. So it really was just this, you know, ethos, this like wraparound holistic environment that had a high view of the life of the mind and, and just wonderment and, and a joy. It was, you know, education and learning and curiosity as a, as a lifestyle. So you ask like what they did, it was just who they are. Um, and I actually have, I just created a, a, a gift for anyone who orders my book. It's a, it's, it's one of several resources that I created as a, as a gift. It's called, it's an ebook called cultivating curiosity, the hidden secret to the life well lived. Cause I do believe that cultivating a curiosity can be cultivated and B, I think it is a essential ingredient to an enriching personal life, just just approaching every person, every every experience, with a sense of awe and wonderment and gratitude and just curiosity. Like, what can this teach me? What can this person teach me? What can this experience, good or bad, and often bad, having that disposition position of curiosity can really be powerful to and seeing us through. How can how can this teach me something? How can I grow through this? That just that sort of reframe reframe and how we approach. Even even toxic people, even uninteresting people. That's one thing I, I that I think is really important. Like there are no uninteresting people, just uninterested people. And and every single person I believe has something that that that, can, that they can teach us. So all that to say, what did my parents do? Is just who they are, and I'm I'm so so grateful for that. But it's something that anyone can can do. You know, starting right now, if they want, if they within their home life, they want to create a culture of curiosity and learning. It just takes, you know, picking up a book or a podcast and um, letting. That's the fun part about autodidactism. That's the fun part about lifelong learning. It's that it's all the benefits of school. Like people, I think, like to learn. We we're we're geared for self improvement, and unfortunately, often how school's done in our in our world today, it, especially the West, is it takes the joy out of it. You know, it's all about teaching to tests and living in a box and moving from box to box, classroom to classroom, period to period, and like fulfilling core requirements, as opposed to 
letting us follow our intellectual interests that I think we all do have, but unfortunately that gets like beaten out of us in formal schooling all too often. So I'm grateful that because of these, this intellectual support and sort of architecture that my parents raised us in, there were times where I hated school, hated formal school, but because of this home environment, I was so, I'm so grateful to have had, I didn't win. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. That's good. Would you, do you think that this description is fair? Civilities that Aristotelian mean between an empty form of politeness and aggressiveness. What do you think about that framing? Interesting. So in my book, I talk about this, my time in government being this, this education in two extremes to use your, to use your framework. So my mother, let's just step back one more, one more one step. (laughs) My mother, she is the manners lady. She is, her name is Judy, the manners lady. So I was raised in this home environment that was really tuned to etiquette and manners and social expectations and norms. And I remember I'm like constitutionally allergic to authority. I hate being told what to do. I hate, especially if no one can give me like a rationale for to do it. So I always had this sort of skepticism about arbitrary norms of do's and don'ts, but I generally followed them and they generally served me very well. They helped me succeed in school and in life. And one thing my mother always said was that manners mattered because they were an outward expression of our inward character. And then all of a sudden I find myself in government and I'm, I'm confronted with these two extremes. On one hand, there were these aggressively hostile individuals. They were willing to, you know, stop, step on anyone to get what they wanted. And you knew exactly where they stood. You knew what kind of person they were. They, they didn't, no bones about it. They, they just, you know, they were who they were and you understood that. You knew how to operate within that. And then there were, there was this other contingent. And at first glance, I thought that they were my contingent because they were smooth and they were polished and, and, you know, refined. And, and, and then I realized though, but they were the kind of people that would, you know, smile and, and compliment you, flatter you one moment. And the moment you never, no longer served their purposes, they would stab you in the back all while smiling. <laughs> and, and I realized that, that those two extremes, they were two sides of the same coin because they were both about instrumentalizing others. They were both about, they were both willing to do whatever is necessary to succeed, to get ahead. And they were just different means of achieving the same selfish, self-aggrandizing ends. And so I define civility in my book as the bare minimum of respect that we are owed and owed others by virtue of our shared humanity, by virtue of our equal moral worth as members of the human community. And that sometimes that requires being impolite, doing and saying things that might offend people, telling people hard truths, you know, talking politics and religion. Like we need to talk about those. That's often, it's often said, you know, don't talk about politics and religion at the dinner table. Like you don't want to make someone uncomfortable if you disagree, but like human flourishing and especially modern liberal democracy requires talking about those questions of origin, purpose, and destiny, the meaning of life, questions of the highest order that that politics and religion reflect on. And so to answer your question, is is civility a golden mean between the two? It's it's maybe. It's 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 certainly an alternative. It's certainly a, an alternative to these two two extremes. So so maybe. I think I think I tentatively accept that. I I may have to think about it a little more. Well would you say that politeness is overrated today or is that too broad of a brush? It's a great question. 
I think that civility and politeness are often conflated. So there, there are two contingents today. There are many people that you know long for this bygone era of chivalry and gentility and decency across divides, as if there was this golden age of civility in American public life. And and the, that contingent uses you know politeness and civility interchangeably. And then on the other hand, there are people today that think you know it's a civility is a tool of white supremacy, of oppression, of the politically powerless and oppressed, a way to silence disagreement and appeals to politeness as a way to say no, 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 we can't talk about you know race or gender or anything that's not the status quo. That's that's we don't do that in polite society, you know that and. And both those contingents, those that long for these, this bygone era of gentility and chivalry and civility, and, bo- and that, that, that contingent that thinks that it's a tool of oppression and to keep the powerless in positions of powerlessness, they conflate these two ideas. They use them interchangeably. And, and, and I think most people do. They don't have a meaningful, there's no meaningful framework by which to disentangle them. And I think it's essential that we disentangle them. Um, it's actually not, it's understandable why we do this. It's if you go to dictionaries t- right now, there these words, civility and politeness are defined in terms of the other. Samuel Johnson, uh, 1755, his very first English dictionary, he defines these two words in terms of the other. Politeness is in the, in, in the definition of civility, civility, the definition of politeness. So it's understandable why we do this. I just think it creates a lot of confusion about what we want in the society and what we should even aspire for and aim for. So I make a case for disentangling the two. I, I say politeness is manners. Politeness is a, it's, it's a technique. It's etiquette. It's outward actions, gestures. Civility is a disposition of the heart. It's a way of seeing others as our moral equals. And again, worthy of respect in light of that. And sometimes respecting someone means telling a hard truth and not not being polite, not papering over difference and diminishing and sweeping difference under the rug. That requires robust debate. And the etymology of these two words supports that distinction. The Latin root of politeness is polier, which means to smooth or to polish. So again, politeness is about the external and it's about, you know, polishing over difference, papering over difference, as opposed to giving us tools to grapple with difference head on. Civility comes from the Latin root civitas, and it's the root for city citizenship. Um, and and that's what civility is. It's the habits of a citizen in the city. It's a, it's it's the habits of, of 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 a democracy. It's the habits of of any human community. And again, requires telling hard truths, like respecting someone enough to do the hard thing, not the easy thing, which is you know not telling the hard truth, and not the patronizing thing, which is not telling the hard truth. And so to your question about whether politeness is overrated, yes, it absolutely is in the way that people often think that if we could just, you know, get along and talk nicer together, that that's enough. And there have been really valiant efforts, especially in American public life in recent decades to do that. But what we learn from those and many other efforts is that just talking nicely and having more politeness, like more manners, like that's not enough. Like there has to be a fundamental reorientation of our priorities and our disposition towards others, seeing them as a human being worthy of respect. And if we don't have that, then the, the, the empty gestures of politeness are worthless. 
politeness can be a tool, an important tool of facilitating conversation across difference and modulating who we are and what we believe in order to better communicate and get along with others. But without the disposition of civility, it's, it's useless. It's alone. It's not enough. Right, right. Yeah, it reminds me of the principle or relationship advice to have the fight. Just have the fight. Sometimes it's mm-hmm. better to bring up any initial form of conflict initially. And I love that. I love that idea because rather than avoiding. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I think you're absolutely yeah. right that conflict can be this powerful tool of of intimacy and growth, and it can strengthen a relationship. And I, I, and, and I think too often today, though, we don't do conflict well in that we avoid it entirely, which is, you know, what politeness might do, repressing it, smoothing over it, like sweeping it, sweeping the conflict, deferring it, you know, or we do conflict badly where it's, it's very aggressive. It's ad hominem, like, like it's heat of the moment and we're, we're attacking people and we're, it's not tempered by human dignity. It's not tempered by the respect that we owe to others and, and that we owe ourselves too. Like we and this is a key part of my understanding and definition of, of civility and why it matters to society, that we are hurt when we are when we treat others poorly. We are so interconnected as a, as a species in a really beautiful and profound way that when we debase someone, we're cruel, we're malicious. It doesn't just hurt and debase the other. It deforms our own soul as well. And this is, this is, you know, you you sound like you're a student of Aristotle. Like this is a very Aristotelian idea. Like virtue is a habit and moral habits for good is a virtue. Moral habits for ill is a vice. And so in that way, and I'm happy to talk, talk more about this and, and this question, especially in the context of philosophical history, but, you know, just like virtue is its own reward, vice is its own punishment. That's the case for civility as well. It's its own reward. And, and being malicious to others is its own punishment because it hurts us. Yeah, absolutely. I think it seems like we've either lost or perhaps never fully had this idea that vice is its own punishment. And typically there's going to be a focus on either victims, which of course matters quite a lot, but there's very little focus on the vicious suffering, the results of their own misdeeds or the uh, opposite, the virtuous being rewarded or admired merely just because of what, what they did rather than whatever results obtained. Exactly. In my book, I put Machiavelli in dialogue with Socrates on this exact question. You often hear this, you know, cliche, like nice guys finish last, right? Like, and it's this question in, in, in philosophical moral history as well. Like, can you be a good person, person of integrity and bound by morality and decency and succeed in life. And Machiavelli said no in his account of power. And this is like just purely a descriptive, not a normative account. He's like, no, people who are bound by morality, especially Christian morality and love of others and charity, they fail, they suffer. And people that are bound by the logic of you know, Thrasymachus from Plato's Republic, like might makes right, like the, the logic of power and doing anything to get ahead, they tend to succeed in life. This is Machiavelli's account of power in human history. And then Socrates' response to that would be, again, you know, what's your definition of success? 
is it, is it worldly success? Like, is that, is that what matters most? Like if, you know, the promotion or the car or the house or the, the, the wealth, the prestige, the power, if that's your goal and you achieve that by doing anything necessary, but you're, but you can't sleep at night. Like that's its own punishment. The fact that you've, you've hurt others along the way to, to gaining these material temporal gains again, to this point that Socrates and, and others after him have made that virtue and living a life um, is, is health of the soul and vice is sickness of the soul is, is what he says. And so virtue and, and civility, treating others with decency, that's its own reward, vice, incivility, cruelty, malice, its own punishment. So it may seem like nice guys finish last or it may seem that, you know, people who are willing to do and say anything succeed, but at the end of the day, it's its own punishment. They have to live with themselves. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, I think it's sometimes it's missed how truly radical Socrates is, where if you first pass, you look at the apology and it's a tragedy. Socrates is killed unjustly. But Socrates' view of what happened is he wasn't harmed at all. You know, he yes. did the right things and you know, everything that was outside of his control, the Athenian actions, you know, those happened as they uh were fated to as, as it were and it's a tragedy for the athenians who made the mistake of unjustly yes. uh, sentencing to, to death right and this is why in the credo the credo yeah. he doesn't escape like his wealthy friend invites him like come on like let's get you out of here you don't deserve to die and socrates says no this is what my peers have condemned me to and he goes solemnly to his death i think my favorite platonic dialogue is the phaedo that gives such a robust a noble vision of the philosophic life and the human soul where Socrates doesn't fear death. As you mentioned, he relishes it. He looks forward to it because finally, like he was someone that, you know, didn't bathe. He, he didn't, he wore rags. He barely ate. Like he was just totally someone that diminished the life, the temporal life, the carnal existence, because he was so passionate about ideas and passionate about the life of the mind. And and so when finally the opportunity presents himself for him to shed his mortal coil and like not be distracted by hunger and thirst and having to, you know, wear clothes and <laughs> do all these things that we have to do to survive, like no longer being distracted by the needs of the body. Like what a gift he, you know, Socrates says to just have his immortal soul, like elevated into eternity and unified with beauty and goodness and truth. I love Plato more than Aristotle. I'll put, put my cards on the table, just like I love Platonic dialogues. They're, they're vivid, they're rich and vibrant. But I do think that, I'm not, I'm, I, I do think that the life of the body matters. And again, to my, how I, how talking about the civic humanist, I think that there is a noble and rich life to be had now. And I, I do believe in, you know, the immortality of the soul and, 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 and an afterlife. However, I don't believe that. I, I don't think it's right to diminish the body and the here and the now for the, for any hope of a life to come, which is what Socrates and other ascetics, ascetics those who prescribed to asceticism after him did. Uh, I think, I just think that there's too much joy and richness to be had here and now to, to give all that, to give all that up. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, you do have the sort of the Platonist or Neoplatonist reading of what's going on that almost comes to really dismiss the body or even hold in contempt in some sense, where uh, on some of the Gnostic visions, it becomes the material world becomes part of, you know, the creation of some evil demiurge or what have you. And that, that really does seem to divorce you from 
either in the Aristotelian sense or in some other many other Hellenistic philosophies, what you are. You're not merely a floating immaterial substance, but you're either bound to a body or in some sense made up by a body. And this vision of being a purely immaterial thing that needs to free itself from its you know material cage. There's not nothing to that to that idea, but it, taken to its extreme, it does seem to divorce you from what, what you really are. And by right. the ancient vision, if you're divorced from what you really are, you're divorced from your good or your purpose. Right. And as human beings, we're mind, body, and spirit. And I think what's interesting, like I think Plato is a really good counterbalance to our current moment that the world we live in now values the body. You know, it's a cult of ambition and success and power and also scientism, like like that we what we see is all there is. And if it can't be proven by science, then doesn't matter, doesn't exist. And so I think that thinkers that remind us that there are, you know, all that we see is not all that there is, that in fact, arguably, that's not the most important thing what we can see, and that there is fallibility in science as well, that there's the, like, I love Blaise Pascal, who's all throughout my book, and he has this great line, la corde, the heart has reasons that reason cannot understand, that there's more to us than just our mind. And again, he's someone that really had a high, and again, Pascal is the 17th century French polymath who was kind of a generation after René Descartes. So he's like in the thick of the enlightenment. And he's this genius. He invented the first computer, the first calculator. He invented the first omnibus system in Paris. And he invented the vacuum, like just, you know, a litany of achievements and just this prodigy, child prodigy in, in, in scientific innovations. And yet he had this conversion experience to a kind of radical Christianity, a very extreme version of Christianity, where he realized that all of his scientific pursuits didn't matter if his, if his, if his like spiritual and internal life wasn't vibrant and robust. So he ended up abandoning his scientific pursuits and just thought about and just nurtured his interior life, nurtured his immortal soul. And, you know, in a kind of a very Socratic way, kind of prepared himself for death. For the rest of his life, he locked himself in a room and just thought and wrote and contemplated the good until he ultimately lived a very extreme, isolated lifestyle until he eventually died. So I don't think he's a model for us in, in all ways, but he definitely has rich ideas that I think, again, are really important antidotes to our very materialist scientific moment now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there is something to finding a role model who maybe perhaps is too extreme in their implementation, but moves one or moves a culture in the right direction. I think that's such a great point that we live in this culture of heroes and villains. Like, like you're either perfect. And if you're not perfect, you're a villain. And, and to your point though, like, what about having heroes that have a villainous aspect or not, or not even a villainous aspect, like, like Pascal, like he lived a really extreme lifestyle that I wouldn't recommend, but like even in people's failures, we can learn from that. And, and instead, like we live in this era of strange perfectionism where we expect everyone to be complete and whole and have it all figured out. And like changing your mind about something is, is, is considered a sin. Like it's flip-flopping, right? Or making a mistake, an error in judgment, losing your temper, like being caught on camera at like not your best moment. And all of a sudden you're canceled because and you've lost your job and you're destroyed because of one aspect of, of, of who you are, one mistake that you've made, even if it's 30 years ago, you know, like that's so reductive of the human spirit because it's not seeing us in the fullness. 
of who we are. And the fullness of who we are, as Blaise Pascal said, is the greatness and wretchedness of man. That's how he views the human condition. Like we are the pinnacle of God's created world and his conception. And yet we are capable of descending down with the beasts, you know, and being, being malicious and barbaric to, to one another. And that, those, that, that duality is in all of us without fail. And so to expect perfection is, is unrealistic. It's untenable. I love Alexander Pope's insight, the, the English poet, he says, you know, to, to err is human, to forgive is divine. And I've heard it said elsewhere really insightfully that, you know, we live in this post-Christian era that we've kind of perverted Christianity. We've kept the Christian tenets of, you know, condemnation and judgment for sins. And yet we've lost Christian notions of charity and and compassion and forgiveness. So this adulterated, like quasi-religious obsession with purity. And that is incredibly degrading to what it means to be human and, and the human spirit. Yeah, that's really interesting. It does seem like there's a, when you look at role models, heroes, there is a requirement of purity, which often just isn't going to be met, which leaves people in a position of nihilism, where we have uh, an exercise as, as a, in our Stoic app, when Stoic practice is to contemplate a sage, a role model, and often a number of people will struggle thinking of, you know, who's an actual yeah. role model or even a fictional person to look up to. But you know, there is that challenge that if you're in that position, then, you know, what are one's values at all? Or if you think they're unattainable, what, in what sense are they going to be actionable for either yourself or others? I, I love that exercise. And I think a model in the Stoic vein and era is Plutarch, the Greco-Roman moralist. So he was of Greek descent, but a citizen of the Roman Empire. And he wrote these famous biographies of famous Greeks and put them in dialogue with famous Romans. And again, he is of Greek descent, but a Roman citizen, but he didn't have an ax to grind. This is not like pro-Rome or pro-Greek propaganda. He's like, no, I'm going to identify virtue in putting these lives and these people's stories in dialogue and praise it. I'm going to identify vice and I'm going to condemn it. It doesn't matter where it is or who's done what. And I think that's such an that's such a valuable use of history and, and, and storytelling. Like he's a remarkable historian. Like he's not only really academically rigorous in, in how, in how he gathered these life stories, but he's a great storyteller and he, he harnesses the power of storytelling in a remarkable way. And again, he shows the greatness and wretchedness of man. Like not any one of these biographies is pure hagiography. It's not just saying, look at this great person who's just the best. And we want that. In a society, we, we, we kind of find it really difficult. And, and that'd be an interesting line of conversation, maybe for another day about like, what is it about our culture that makes it so hard for us to grasp nuance and like have multiple things to be true at one time, especially about a person. <laughs> like, again, we want to reduce people and things to black and white, good or evil, right or wrong. And that's just not who we are. Right, right. Well, one question I should ask about is, you know, in political argument, often you find yourself in a position where it seems like the other side is more interested in winning than pursuing the truth, or it seems like they've decided that it's politics is the domain of war, and you can try think about, you know, this is give my arguments and so on, give my reasons for thinking what I believe is true. But whenever you do that, when talking to some people, it seems like you're playing 
the, a different game than what they are playing. So how do you think about that uh, being in that position? I, I think you're absolutely right that, and, and I think this, lead, this this is a continuation of what we were just talking about, about narratives of right versus wrong, good versus evil that are that are in our minds and then perpetuated and enforced in like our media culture and everything around us. That if we reduce the world and others to narratives of right or wrong, good versus evil, then the other is not someone to be reasoned with. They're not someone to respect even. If they're an evil person, a bad person with bad ideas, harmful ideas, ideas that will hurt others, then it's scorched earth. You know, vanquishing them is the only objection. And that's the danger of this sort of holy war, like righteous indignation that is so pervasive in our political rhetoric and public life today, where we don't see the other side as comprised of people who are worthy of respect by virtue of our equal moral worth as members of the human community, by virtue of our human dignity that we all share, even when we disagree. When we consume and imbibe and accept these narratives of right or wrong and good versus evil, it becomes easier to do and say things and to be un- unshackled, right, unbound by the natural limit that, that respecting someone by virtue of our shared humanity would present on us. There are certain, certain things that you don't do, you don't say to someone, to, to, to your kin, like your fellow fellow human being. And I, I, love, I love that etymology of kindness, actually. It comes from the, I think it's the old English word for kin and kinship, which is like, you know, your family, but that's what kindness is. It's treating not your kin, not your family as if they were. It's sort of a universalized morality, like the sort of tribe, the morality and the logic of tribalism is ingrained in us. And it's like a natural way that we survive because we protect us and our own people who are, who are like us and our families. And, but yeah, the logic of kindness, the logic of civility kind of universalizes that morality. And no, it's not just the lives and well-being of your family and those that you like and are like you that matters. Actually, we, we do have a basic obligation not a, not a limitless obligation, but they're at least a basic one to those that are not like us and not part of our kin. And that, that, that kind of etymology of kindness tells that, that story in a beautiful way. Right, right. So I suppose there's always a, a question when if you're in an argument like this, you know, perhaps you might be mistaken about you being the person who is being rational, being fair. You know, there's always that, that bias towards, towards oneself. But it seems like truly in some situations, the other party is not engaging in the same terms. So I guess, you know, this is something I haven't figured out personally, but what's the next step there? Do you continue in this sort of Socratic fashion and that is nothing to you and it's merely important that you do what is best, what is virtuous, or is there some other route where perhaps you just don't engage with those people or something of that sort? So I'll tell you a story, probably one that you and your listeners already know, but when Marcus Aurelius was emperor of Rome, he endowed four schools of philosophy. For the Aristotelians, he endowed the Lyceum. For the Platonists, he endowed the Academy. For the Epicureans, he endowed the Garden. And for the Stoics, he endowed the Stoa. 
the front porch. And I love, there's so much that I love about that, that story because of course the, the, the Stoics represent my theory of social change and I you know, champion Stoicism throughout my book, sometimes using the language and sometimes just using the ideas, but that, that we can't change others, but we can change ourselves. And that if enough of us choose to kind of reclaim our civic sphere and reclaim what we can control, we can change the world. I have no doubt of that. But that's what's frustrating to lots of people today that they just yell at the people on TV and yell at Washington, yell at their public leaders, and they're frustrated that no one's listening to them and no one's changing, right? But like, <laughs> that's really not what they can control or they what they should control. And what does it look like when we dig in, dig in to what we can control and be a better neighbor, a better spouse, a better parent, um, and again, cultivating the fullness of ourselves, we can bring the best version of who we are to, to others and show up better for the people in our immediate vicinity. And I think, see, so you, you may know that story, but what you might not know is that this tradition of the stoa and, and porching is alive and well. And so I tell the story in my book about a woman named Joanna Taft. So I live in Indianapolis now. Part of my story is that I left very toxic Washington, D.C. and moved to Indianapolis, just like eager to escape the cesspool of the divided nature of our public life. And I just, you know, my husband's from the Midwest, from Indiana originally, and it was my decision to move here. I just had to escape. And one of the first people we met when we moved here was this woman named Joanna Taft. We met her at our church. And after church, she comes up to me and says, hi, I'm Joanna. Would you like to porch with us today? And I'd never heard the word porch used as a verb before, but I said, sure. We didn't know that many people there. So we, we go to her home and she has this great big, you know, 1905 Victorian home with a huge veranda, huge front porch. And for Joanna, the porch is a social statement. It's a, it's the subversive movement of exactly what we've been talking about, reclaiming our social sphere. And it's this, it's her opportunity every week to stage a rebellion against our atomized and divided status quo that wants to um, reduce us to one aspect of who we are. So she's intentional about curating people across different races, different political beliefs, different parts of town even. So often we're just captive to the people that we see on a regular basis that we go to school with, go to church with, work with, right? But like giving people an opportunity to, to intermingle from, from across these different barriers and spheres and to just be people. There's no organization. There's no like structured conversation. It's just an opportunity to, you know, have a few nibbles and have a dialogue and, and strike up a, a conversation and a friendship with someone that you've never met before. And so there's a lot to say about the importance of places like that, these sort of quasi-public spaces to building social trust and, and, and restoring civil society and rebuilding bonds that in turn support our democracy and human flourishing. I, I have a lot to say about that, but at a, at a very real, real level in a way that's like relevant to, to this community is that people are staging this sort of proto-Stoic revolution without even knowing you know, like Joanna had never sat down and read Epictetus before or meditations before, but she's living it out. And so many people like her are. And how beautiful is that? That there's this like inhabitation, this embodiment of these ideas. And they're, they're life-changing. Like I, I, my life was changed by Joanna's kindness. And I know I'm not the only one. Like people who live their lives according to that logic. Like I can't change the world, but I can change myself. Like Joanna has made Indianapolis a beautiful place, and I can, I can name a thousand people who would agree that that they've touched. She, in, in just small ways, has touched their lives, elevated 
their experience of how they, you know, they live in the world and or in this town because of that. And that's powerful. So don't, don't underappreciate the power of one person to, to change the world. I, I, I have this idea in, in my book, I call it um, the mellifluous echo of the magnanimous soul. And um, what I, what I really realized in, I was so drawn to Joanna because she was so much like my mother and my grandmother in so many ways. Again, these people that just lived according to a different logic, like they just breathed life and light wherever they went. There's this great French word in, in perfumery called sillage. And it's the, it's the scent that, that is in your wake as you walk. Like it's, so it's not just how perfume smells on you. It's the after effect after you've left the room, like you leave this sillage, this wake of, you know, beauty and scent that's really intoxicating. But I love that imagery of, you know, someone who just like leaves a wake of light and beauty wherever they go. And so we often hear these stories. They're in the newspaper every day about generational trauma. And, you know, like someone's in the news for being a serial killer and they were they were the product of two drug addict parents or product of the foster care system or an abusive grandparent or something horrible like that. Like we're, we're aware vividly and tragically of these stories of one person to cause harm across time and place, right. To the people that they, that come after them or the people that they interact with, right. Like they're their families and their friends. Um, Hillbillyology is a great example of, of that very famous story of one mother who made bad decisions that caused a lot of strife in one family and one community across time and across place. But less often do we hear stories of the inverse, where one person, because of their magnanimous soul and their decision to live their lives according to a different logic, creates not, a, not generational trauma and a vicious cycle, but a virtuous one, a mellifluous echo that reverberates across time, across generation, across across place. And that was that was my grandmother, who was the social glue of her family. She passed away three years ago now, but was a social glue of her family and just like touched, like she saw every single human interaction as like a joy-filled thing. And she just approached it like this is the she every person she met, she's like, it is such a gift that I'm with you right now. Like it doesn't matter who it was, like her her cashier, her taxi driver, like the person that she sat with on the airplane, like every single person she treated it as like such a sacred gift. And I don't know, like that it's, it's totally otherworldly and totally contrary to the logic of this world where we're like, we're very utilitarian. We're like, let's just get from point A to point B without draining any energy. And like, she just lived according to a totally different logic <laughs> where she's like giving all her energy away to all people all the time. Cause she's like, she just loved it. She was just like a social animal and she blessed so many people. She puzzled a lot of people, a lot of people are like, what is going on? Like, I don't know what to do right now. Someone's talking to me. Like, it's just, it's so uncommon to have <laughs> just those moments with strangers, like to talking with someone who you're sitting with on an airplane and like wanting to know deeply and passionately, like their life story, which is what my grandmother always wanted to know from other people. <laughs> some, some people were like, and my, some people are puzzled. Continue. My, my grandmother's passed away. My mom, my mom, thankfully is still, still with us. And my mother, bless her. She's a wonderful human puzzles people too. <laughs> they just don't understand like all the joy and energy. Like, where is this coming from? Like, there's there an ulterior motive, but there's not, there's really not. She just like, they just love people and they bless people wherever they go. And I don't know how they do it. Like I, I struggle to like keep up with both their energy level. Like my mom is an order of magnitude above me. And my grandmother was an order of magnitude in terms of like energy and joy <laughs> above my mother even. And so, yeah, we can't change the world, but we can change ourselves. And that's a powerful, powerful idea.
Yeah, I love that. That's fantastic. And good examples of models, I think, as well. Well, is there anything else you'd like to add or share? Well, thank you for having me. And I hope that everyone listening to this will consider pre-ordering the book, The Soul of Civility, Timeless Principles to Heal Society and Ourselves. And I've created $700 worth of gifts to everyone who takes the time to pre-order it, including the ebook I mentioned, Cultivating Curiosity, a toolkit called How to Talk to Anyone About Anything, about timeless principles of conversation, and as well as, as monthly conversations, private conversations with some of the greatest public intellectuals of our day, and a course uh, it's called Four Civility Books That Will Change Your Life. So from the oldest book in the world in ancient Egypt, I kid you not, the oldest book in the world is a handbook on civility, to more contemporary books like from our own George Washington. I, I examined four of them that I think are really insightful to help us understand these timeless principles of living well with others across difference. And so anyway, you can claim that that pre-order that that order a gift on 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 my website and 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 if you want to stay up to date with the with the book and and the life of the mind and autodidactism and cultivating our potential as human beings these are all themes i care a lot about my publication is civic renaissance so feel free to join there as well excellent thanks so much for coming on Thanks again for listening to Stoa Conversations. If you found this conversation useful, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and share it with a friend. And if you'd like to practice Stoicism with Michael and I, as well as others walking the Stoic path, we are running our three-week course on Stoicism Applied. It'll be live with a forum, interactive calls, and I think we'll be an excellent way for a group of people to become more stoic together. So do check that out at stoameditation.com slash course. And if that's not to your fancy, you can find links to the Stoa app as well as the Stoa letter, our newsletter on stoic theory and practice at stoameditation.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time.